The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly Cash Like More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, yet another show in the can. This was fantastic. Uh, with us tonight, Stuart is not here, but with us is the great Hannah R. Abrams. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. By the time this comes out, you might even be uh, Dr. Hannah R. Abrams. <laughs> it is what do you possible. Think? It, is, it is possible, depending yeah. on how quickly we do the show notes, but yeah. Okay. So we are going to talk about fatigue on this episode with Dr. Nina Minjoni, but Paul, tell people, what do we do on this show in general? What do we do on the on the curbsiders? I am so happy you asked. I can't even tell you. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And then I'm, I heard a rumor that uh, soon to be Dr. Abrams will be providing a truly dreadful pun uh, at the end of this as well. It's also possible. So actually, yeah. what? <laughs> so... Why don't we why don't we let Hannah tell us about um, what's coming up and who's talking to us? Yeah, we had a fantastic episode with Dr. Min- Nina Mingioni. Dr. Mingioni is a clinical associate professor of medicine at the Sydney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in Philly. She wears that is <laughs> several academic hats. She's the director of core clerkships, director of undergraduate medical education for the Department of Medicine at TJU, and she's the associate program director for the internal medicine residency. She's a proud general internist with academic interests in undergraduate medical education. And she gives us a fantastic show tonight on fatigue, talking to patients about fatigue, what high value workup is, and so much more. So uh, to lead us into that fantastic episode, I have a terrible pun. Uh, Why did the bicycle stop cycling? Paul, should we even engage this? I I let that silence sit. I think we should not edit that out. (laughs) It was uh, too tired. Two tires. Oh, that's not bad. I like that, Hannah. That's that's pretty good. <laughs> We've done worse. Stuart yeah. would be so proud. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Enjoy the show. Nina, we'd like to start off on the show asking you for a one-liner. It's been, I guess, several years since we all recorded together, and I believe Hannah was there too, just by chance. I think we were down in uh, New Orleans for that. Yes, we were. At the ACP conference. Yes, we were. Uh, So tell the audience a one-liner about yourself and maybe a hobby that you have outside of medicine. Um, Let's see. 43-year-old internist, medical educator, a control freak, and um, a dance mom. And let's see, hobbies I have outside of medicine, they're slowly dwindling. So I, uh, my big hobby used to be photography, but now I'm like a full-time dance mom. And that's taken up like every ounce of my energy that I have in time. So there you go. And just to clarify, dance mom, you're not doing the dancing, you're watching dance. <laughs> or probably what I imagine is endless hours of recitals that are one of my least favorite things to go to. No, I, so I actually like our dance studio. Uh, my son does ballroom dancing. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of travel to competitions. Um, and it's all about the bling, the costumes, the music, the movement. It's actually, it's a nice community. It's a lot of fun, but man, it's a lot of time and a lot of money. Okay. But I get to hang out with my kid all the time. That's nice. That is nice. Hannah and Paul, defer to you. Let's. I'm going to defer my book question because I, I don't actually read any of the books that are recommended to me anyway. So, um, <laughs> oh, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> 
it's I, I should probably have admitted that way earlier so so I, let me <laughs> tell me about the the photography instead so actually let me ask this will be sort of a weird question but i i i see some of the pictures they actually are even using as a zoom background yes. but i tell me about the favorite city that you've been in to photograph and, and when you went tell me about that trip oh man so i like traveling to europe and it's been a couple, that's not, it wasn't that long, but anyway, I like traveling to Europe. And when I travel with my husband, it's very nice because he's very tolerant of me taking pictures. Cause usually it's not like you pop in and you take a picture and you walk away. Right. So I, I travel with like a lot of gear because God forbid I left the lens at home. And then like, I will shoot it from different angles. I will show up like, like this particular shot was Prague. Um, and I showed up at like seven o'clock in the morning to take that picture because any other time it's just too crowded. So it's uh so I love photographing Europe and um it has to be at odd times and it cannot be with my kids. That's it. So that's the biggest thing. And then um my favorite city most recently I went to probably Prague and before that was St. Petersburg in uh Russia. Oh, wow. And they're both incredible and Prague as I feel like is easy and everybody like everybody's been a lot of people have been. Uh but when this insanity with the pandemic is over, people should absolutely go to St. Petersburg. It's actually very easy to travel to because everybody speaks good English. And all the street signs are in Russian, but also in English. And it's incredibly beautiful and very crowded and very touristy, but stunningly beautiful and very easy to travel into. So, Yeah. Do you have any big plans after the pandemic? We have. <laughs> I, I had, plans are in flux all the time. Um, we had, um, I was supposed to go to Germany with my son for a dance competition. Oh, wow. um, twice this year and one definitely fell through because it was in June. So I'm hoping to go in December. Should be nice. So I think we should get into the topic here. It's, we're recording a little bit late at night here. I want to make sure everyone can can get to bed at a decent hour. Hannah's probably drinking coffee right now, so it doesn't even matter to her. But uh, for the rest of us, like a <laughs> that like a reasonable bedtime, Hannah, that aren't in our 20s. That you know uh, me too well. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm sorry for picking a late recording time, but I figured I would be done with the insanity of my like academic life. No, but... that's why we always record at this time of night. So yeah, no need to apologize. No, uh, we we, should, we always is... record at this time. This is past your bedtime, typically, right? Is it really? It is. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. I'm a night owl, <laughs> so I could record till like two in the morning. I'll be fine. Early in the morning, big problem. Clinical pearls <laughs> until nice. two in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> the epic episode. It gets better. Let's let's take a case from Cashlack <laughs> Memorial, and I'll let Hannah do the honors. Absolutely. So Miss Tyrod is a 43-year-old uh, woman who presents to your office for routine care. You ask her what brings her in today, and she just says. Doc, I feel run down all the time. I think we just need to take screen captures of Paul's face when you read I'm just the, the punny names. Tyrod is probably the best one we've ever done. Like I really, it's it's, <laughs> I it's pretty Sis solid. I miss and Diana Stalick, but uh, <clears throat> I, oh my yeah, well, that's I will never live down that shame. But Tyrod's not bad. It's, it's not bad. I, it took me a little bit of time to figure out what that meant when I saw it in the screen. <laughs> so but I appreciated well done, the pun. Well, I couldn't anyway. <laughs> So how do you start when you're talking to a patient with fatigue without any kind of localizing symptoms? And how do you think about classifying it? So I, I guess before I even start that, I feel like when I was, um, when I was a younger or uh, sort of more of a brand new attending, when, when people would tell me they were fatigued, it would like ruin my day almost as much as dizziness does, right? Yep. But they're like dizzy. You're like, oh, you know, mentally <laughs> fatigue, the same thing. You're like, oh, man. So that that stopped, I have to say. So once I worked out a good mental net like framework for how to approach fatigue, it's actually not that painful. And there is a there is a systematic approach to these things. So the first thing that I would, I guess, say is that 
patients use a word fatigue in a very colloquial way, and it means different things to different people. And it's very important for me when I start to figure out what the cause of the problem is to try to figure out exactly what they mean when they say I'm fatigued or I'm tired, that it's, it means very different things to different people and, and bring them back to the basics and start by um, asking very open-ended questions to figure out exactly what their symptoms are, because that's going to pretty heavily um, guide how I'm going to go ahead and ask for history afterwards. Can I just, this is a quote from, this is an old episode number 40, and Hannah pointed out that this was a good one to kind of review before before doing this talk. And Dr. Michael McDermott is an endocrinologist we spoke to about fatigue, and his definition that he gave me, I have it quoted here, was a multifactorial symptom that requires a multifactorial approach and patience and time, which I thought was like pretty pretty well summing things up and why it, the patients in time yes. part are probably why you have that heart sink when you see like five patients on your schedule complaining of fatigue. Exactly. All right. So Ms. Rudd comes in, she's feeling fatigued. You brace yourself. You feel great because you're a good doctor and you already have your mental framework. I only the other hand <laughs> would feel immediately defeated, but talk, talk to us a little bit about, um, the chronicity. So how important is it when you're sort of talking about how long it's been going on? So other than sort of getting the patient to even clarify what they mean and the symptoms, um, actually, maybe a better question is what are their characteristics are important to you to find out about when someone says they, they have fatigue? So usually the two things that I ask is one, like, what does that mean to you? Or tell me exactly what you feel. Describe your symptoms to me rather than giving me the, the, the sort of the, the sound bites, you know, from Google. And then the second thing, how long it's been going on. And I find... You know, there's no strict definitions of fatigue. You know, like a lot of things in medicine have like, you know, low back pain, acute less than six weeks, you know. Right. And I, I, even those, like I find somewhat useful, but I think mostly they're rooted in like clinical studies that have been done that has to do with diagnosis. And I think with fatigue, a lot of that is the same. In my head, I basically only care is that do they have some sort of an acute illness with very recent onset of fatigue or is that something that's been going on subacute or chronically? Because if there's clearly a new identifiable ailment with fatigue, that's a very different differential diagnosis. And that's really not what we're focusing on today, because the vast majority of your patients will know that like, oh, I have, you know, fever and facial pain and fatigue that they'll figure it's related to whatever infection they have, right? It's the chronic fatigue or subacute fatigue that mainly will land them in your office without, you know, with them seeking help for that specific symptom. So usually in my head, I will like split off the acute folks with an acute illness, which usually have a lot of other symptoms going on that can, you know, that you can sort of hang your differential on, as opposed to the um, the chronic and subacute people that may or may not have other symptoms. It might be useful at this time to just kind of break it down. What are the, what are the big things that you think about? And then, cause when I, when I think about a his, taking a history, I usually have a differential in mind and I'm asking the questions to kind of push me towards one way or another within that differential. So what are the main things on your differential for someone that's coming in with fatigue that's not so acute and it's it's a little bit more vague? So I, I think like the big things to rule out because they're actually diagnosable, and I'm going to back up and say that a lot of times when people have fatigue, it, it is difficult to find what the problem is, but you do have to go through the mental exercise of working through that list to identify, to identify things that are fixable and try to fix them, right? And then if you wind up with some things that you cannot diagnose, c'est la vie, but at least you, you, you've done your best to try, right? So the common things that you will see are anemia, especially in women. As I mentioned before, I see a lot of women in my practice. 
So anemia, especially in young women, is something that we do see fairly commonly. Depression is super common. Thyroid disease is relatively common. I put cardiopulmonary disease on that list as sort of a broad bucket for a lot of the cardiopulmonary diseases that have fatigue as one of the many symptoms that will be associated with the underlying problems. But it's rare. fatigue is rarely the, the only thing that you know they will have. Um, sleep apnea is incredibly common, and we'll talk about that. And then not to be underestimated is medication and supplement side effects, which, again, are also very, very common and require like a specific trip down that lane and will frequently not just happen upon your, you know, on your list unless you specifically go looking. So with that in mind, what I usually do, like in my head, I usually know that when people say fatigue, usually their symptoms fall into one of the, like the buckets, right? So it's usually they're very sleepy or maybe they have dyspnea and exertion. Maybe they have weakness or lack of energy. Maybe it's decreased exercise tolerance or feeling down. Like those are the big buckets where people sort of use those types of feelings to describe, like to to describe when they say fatigue, that's what they mean. So I usually will try to ask around with in an open-ended way until I can get them into like closer to some of these buckets to narrow down my line of questioning. Yeah, I feel like it's also helpful to... um in general, just get a sense of like, how well is this person taking care of themselves and sleeping? Are they doing any sort of activity? Like those sort of things. Like sometimes it's just like, you're, it's just obvious that this person has almost no shot of feeling energetic the way that they're taking care of themselves. Right. So that's so the, like the second, once I, once I'm done asking the very broad questions, I usually do walk them through their day. So I find that that to me is the most helpful thing to try to figure out like where to even start this workup. So I usually think about like my day, you know, starting with waking up and then functioning throughout the day, bedtime and, you know, life enjoyment. And I go from there. And usually I will start at at actually bedtime because I find that an easier starting point because sleep apnea is so prevalent and it helps me get a lot of the important questions out of the way. So usually we'll start with their, like, when do you go to sleep? How long it takes you to go to sleep? Do you wake up a lot at night? You know, are you able to go back to sleep? Do you have a bed partner? Do they hear you snore or gasp? You know, and then when do you wake up in the morning? And how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? So those, like, that bucket of questions usually gets at a lot of the sleep issues. And then I sort of move throughout the day to help me, like, make sure I don't forget anything, right? So then I go, well... So when you wake up in the morning, how much effort does it take you to get out of bed? More checking for like that anhedonia component, right? So I say like, how much effort does it take you to get out of bed? And then when you finally are out of bed, do you feel sleepy throughout the day? Do you fall asleep throughout the quiet activities during the day? How much energy do you have? Do you take naps? How is your mood? Um, So once, once I'm done assessing that, I usually will assess in some way their exercise tolerance. So I usually say like, hey, are you able to keep active? What do you do to stay active? And then what happens when you exert yourself? Are you able to participate in some sort of a physical activity or do you get breathless? Um, And sometimes people need like a little bit more coaching. When you say to people like, do you exercise? Everybody gets really taken aback because they may not be exercising in, in a way that I think what exercise is. But I usually say like, do you stay active or do you keep active? And that people say like, oh, well, I walk up and down subway steps or like I walk to work several blocks and I'm able to assess like, is that, has there been a change in the way they're able to exert themselves and stuff like that. And then finally, I usually will go and assess the impact the symptom has on their life. Um, so I will say like, hey, so what hobbies do you have? Or what, um, what do you enjoy doing? 
And then um, if they're able to say like, hey, you know, I, I love whatever might be, I don't know, taking pictures, right? And I travel everywhere with a lot of gear. Um, so I assess if that is that something they used to enjoy, but now lost the ability to enjoy. Do they still have enjoyment and other day-to-day activities? So just, again, assessing more for the mental health and um, anhedonia. Do you have any, this is a, a little bit off the topic of what you're saying there, but as you're as you're going through all this with the patient uh, before, when you're digging into the, this diagnosis, trying to sort out fatigue, do you do any sort of counseling and tell them, look, this is a challenging s- symptom to identify as a singular cause. We might not find one specific cause. There might be multiple causes, but it, it might take us a while. Do you have any sort of spiel like that? Because if they come in expecting you to figure it out in like one visit, they're probably going to be disappointed. Right. So I usually do that at the end because I feel like if I do my, you know, my usual history in an exam and it's pretty obvious to me they're anemic because they're like chomping on ice and they're very pale, <laughs> I don't have to give them the spiel. Right. right? Yes. I say like, oh, then you can be a know? hero. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I do say to them that I say, I say that fatigue is a symptom that sometimes is very difficult to diagnose what the underlying problem is and to fix. However, I promise you I will do my best to find what might be the problem and try to help you with this. But it will take several visits. The key is that I'm with you and I just know that every step along the way, like we'll, we'll go through this in a stepwise fashion. So there's always things I check first. And then based on the way things are going, um, I will check, you know, next layer of things and next layer of things until we get down to the bottom of it. Right. And you are certainly not compelled to agree with this, but I feel like this specific um, patient concern, oftentimes the patient is just as interested in what the answer is as opposed to what the solution is. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it would be, they just sort of would like to know why that they feel this way and have something they can hang their hat on and actually sort of attribute it to, as opposed to necessarily wanting an answer, like wanting it fixed immediately. You know what I want? So I think just taking it seriously sounds like a large part of the job. Absolutely. So I, I do find that a lot of people with vague symptoms, like a lot of times you're not the first one. They've, they've said that to their family and their family has like shrugged their shoulders and maybe blew them off. And then maybe you're not the first doctor that they see with this chronic symptom. I find that um, having a relationship with the patient is so important. As a primary care doc, like, I don't take it for granted, but I'm always surprised how much extra, like, street cred I have because I have a relationship with the patient because they know I don't blow them off and because they know that I, that, that I trust them and they trust me and they know that I won't just abandon them just because I can't figure something out. So we'll talk about it later, but I find that telling like them knowing that I will clinically follow them and I will always get back to them and say like, Hey, we found X or we didn't find Y the next step is X. So just having that relationship and them knowing that you will not abandon them just because you can't easily find the cause goes a really long way. Should we move to exam or is there anything else on the history that, that you key in on? So I usually, once I'm done with my sort of assessment of the day, I do a check, like just a review of systems. Like if they tell me that they're having exercise intolerance, I will sort of go down more the cardiovascular route and ask them, you know, chest pain, shortness of breath, whatever it might be. But if they don't disclose that, the common review of systems that I will check that people won't commonly disclose to me is weight changes, weight loss or weight gain, um, whether they have any sort of abnormal bleeding or pica. Um, pica is a weird one. I do find it relatively commonly in, in my patient population with anemia. Um, and it's, it's not very sensitive whatsoever, but it is, you know, this got some specificity to it. Uh, but if you find it, people are always surprised because they, they may not, um, feel comfortable disclosing that they're like buying bags of ice every day or eating starch or something like that. So you have to ask very specifically about those things. 
I do very deliberately ask about dyspnea, edema, and any bowel changes. So th- that's like my big five that I ask. Got it. So weight changes, pica. Bleeding and bleeding pica, I sort of lump them yeah. together. Dyspnea, um, edema, and bowel changes. Awesome. Going from there, you were mentioning the exam earlier. What kind of exam maneuvers do you make sure to do for these patients? So exam, again, without very specific symptoms, exam is frequently will not be helpful. Nonetheless, I will do an exam and look for very, very specific things. So obviously, I look at vital signs and you know, blood pressure, or heart rate may be helpful if they're hypothyroid and maybe bradycardic. I do look at conjunctiva. Um, we'll talk about it with anemia, but I do find it, it's, it's not sensitive. But if you do find that there's a, a high likelihood ratio for diagnosing anemia, so that's kind of nice. I do like to look at people's oropharynx, um, specifically keeping the Malampati score um, in mind. Um, and I look at people's necks and thyroids and all this other stuff, cardiova- just basic cardiovascular exam, uh, basic abdominal exam, like nothing, nothing fancy. And I do very, very basic strength testing, especially if they complain of like fatigue that might be more of a weakness flavor. Just doesn't have to be anything fancy, but basically like very large, you know, large muscle testing, like hip flexion and, you know, just resisting arms or something like that. Very, very basic. Because if they have it, you'll see it. And if they don't, they just don't. And they mostly won't, by the way. (laughs) What are the, what are the common medications that, that are culprits here? And looking through your slides, it looks like there's, the, the common medications that cause this are very common medications in general, which is a problem. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think everybody thinks about like narcs, muscle relaxants. Um, you know, I think look, in the world of muscle relaxants, there's a lot of them. I feel like at least in Philadelphia, we mostly use cyclobenzaprine, but there's a whole bunch of others that people may not be as familiar with and just tend to overlook them. But I've had a lot of patients with a lot of um, uh, fatigue from muscle relaxants that are not commonly on our list of, you know, fatigue causing agents. How's that? Uh, sedative hypnotics, um, not that we love to use them, but people are on them. Um, they can cause fatigue well into the day, um, the next day, depending on the clearance. So I'm usually pretty careful with those benzos, obviously. Gabapentin and pregabalin are very common culprits. I feel like we use them a lot and we go up on a dose pretty quickly. And if you're not careful, like people will, like when I was younger, I definitely did all these egregious things that I, I, I like to think I don't do anymore as a physician. Um, but starting on doses that are like too high and too fast is a common culprit. Venlafaxine yep. um, out of the like of the antidepressant categories causes specifically a lot of fatigue, even though I like it for a lot of different reasons. And I do use venlafaxine. Um, that's a big one. TCAs can, I still use TCAs for some of the neuropathic pain, not as a first line agent, but it's got its place. But again, it can cause fatigue well into the next day. So those are the easy ones. The harder ones are beta blockers um, that I feel like people don't think about, but there clearly is a subset of patients that are very sensitive to beta blockers. And I think about, um, one of my patients was this like big, you know, very tall 300 pound guy and wound up on 25 milligrams of metoprolol XL, you know, like extended release and just like could not even stand up vertically. And it was clearly just 25 milligrams of metoprolol. So, and then the other good example I have of that is I had a patient who um, had a lot of fatigue and after like trial and error of many things, and she actually had CAD, um, we wound up taking her off the, um, her metoprolol and next time she showed up to my office she showed up with a bottle of wine because she's like i have not felt this good in years oh, i cleaned my whole <laughs> house <laughs> <laughs> so always think of beta blockers as a cause of fatigue that's a big one 
Um, and then the other one is antihistamine. So I feel like everybody thinks about first generation antihistamines, like you know, like hydroxyzine and and um, and Benadryl. God, uh, diphenhydramine. Thank you. Um, but even second generation that we don't think about causing fatigue very much, like cetirizine, that I feel like I prescribe in the spring for patients for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, they can cause a ton of fatigue. Frankly, like even I can't take cetirizine because last time I took cetirizine, I took three naps during a day, right? It's, it's a common cause of symptoms that we may not commonly think about. And then you've got <laughs> too some... much. <laughs> I was trying to decide if I was going to talk about uh, cetirizine. I've, I, I have the same experience. That, that medicine just knocks me out. Maybe I was drinking beer with it. I don't remember now, now that I'm saying <laughs> Well, I also, it was like an Easter Sunday a couple years ago. I was at my in-laws. I took a Zyrtec because I was just like a mess. And then I took three naps. And I, I had, did have a glass of wine, but three naps? Come on. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a Tuesday to me. But <laughs> <laughs> So do you think it's worth going through just, I mean, maybe briefly sort of your, your basic differential and sort of the things that you're looking for in examination? So you touched on anemia a little bit. And you talked about the conjunctive, conjunctival pallor. And then are there any other findings that that make you, that would sort of raise your eyebrows a little bit higher for anemia? So for anemia, I love the the table out of uh, the McGee book, the evidence-based uh, physical diagnosis book. Um, it's it's a very, um, it, like an eyebrow-raising book, because when you read, there are all these things that you think are very common that turn out to be not very common at all or have crappy likelihood ratios or terrible sensitivity and specificity. Nonetheless, it's it's fun when you find them, right? So for anemia, the, the things that I like, so I, I already mentioned PICO in history. So that has an odds ratio of 2.4 um, for patients having anemia if that have that symptom, which is like not as high as you would think, right? Nonetheless, kind of fun to find, right? So my favorite things for anemia are actually conjunctival rim pallor, which has a very high likelihood ratio. I actually have to like, I had to write it down separately, but it's like 17. Holy yeah, so it's not the regular. So if you look at, if you just pull down like their eyelid and look at the conjunctiva, it's got a, like a likelihood ratio of like 4.7 if you find it pale. However, as it turns out, you can compare the actual rim to like the deeper edge, the inner like fold of the conjunctiva. And the outer edge is always supposed to be like brighter and more red than the inner fold. Okay, the like the back, whatever fold of the conjunctiva. So if you find that they're the same color, that's got the likelihood ratio of like, I think it's 16.7. 16.7. Wow. Is that a nice tip? I think it's a nice tip. That's a nice tip. Everyone right? listening is about to go in the look in the mirror and try. <laughs> when I first read this, I was like in the mirror, I was like, is that true? Um, it is true. It is brighter. Because <laughs> also, by the way, I'm tired all the time. So I'm, I'll be going to most of these Definitely things on Definitely anemic, yeah. <laughs> this, this whole episode was just a backdoor way to diagnose Paul's fatigue. <laughs> Happy to oblige. I've been pushing for this for years, so thank you for finally. <laughs> so then the other, the other like interesting one is palma crease pallor. So if you look at your palms, the lines on your palms, like that's they are supposed to be a little bit darker than the rest of your palms, and if they look pale, that's got the likelihood ratio of like eight for anemia. Pretty good. So that's another. That, those are like pretty good likelihood ratios, right? So that's it. Doesn't cost you anything. It's pretty easy to do. And I can remember those, so it's nice. Of course, like all of these things have terrible sensitivities, terrible sensitivities. Sure. So don't be disappointed if you don't find them. But if you do, it's kind of cool, right? So 
Right, and the patients will think you're a wizard, which is always kind of gratifying. And the med students, yeah. Oh, sure, and the students. Yeah, um, Reza Manesh tells us, told a story on clinical problem solvers on one of their episodes that like some attending had looked at the creases and was like, this patient's hemoglobin is going to be less than six. And it was. It was <laughs> so I, I'm able to tell you, if, if you see people who are very anemic, if you look at their conjunctiva, they, they're white. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. So if you deliberately look, you will find this stuff. And you can tell to the patient, I mean, patients get very impressed because you can predict their hemoglobin. I'm sure it's got terrible sensitivity and specificity, but it does look really cool when you do it. <laughs> so what about, I, I imagine depression, you're doing PHQ-2 or PHQ-9. Is there anything else? I that- like PHQ-9s. So, so in my practice, PHQ-2s get done before I go into the room and it gets recorded with the vital signs, which is very nice. Uh, but I do find that it's it's supposedly pretty sensitive, but I do find that if I have somebody who has fatigue and I think they might have depression, regardless of their PHQ-2 score, I will specifically administer PHQ-9. Fair enough, because it's quick and easy, doesn't cost anything. And we literally have stacks of PHQ-9s in every exam room. And I literally, I usually give it to them and I walk out of the room because I want them to think about it without me like glaring at them. And I, I don't want them rushing. So I'll usually give them like five minutes, go out, like check my tasks, return a phone call and come back into the room after they're done filling it out. So that's my... I do find that it works better without me breathing down their neck. So that's that. Um, I do find that, so when I go through my physical exam, I usually do head to toe, which I'm sure many do. Um, So the the other big one that I always think about is sleep apnea, just because it's so prevalent. Um, And I love looking at people's oropharynxes because I'm like malampati three, malampati four. Like I learned from my uh, anesthesia colleagues, but even that has like, like likelihood ratio for severe sleep apnea is like 1.7, which is pretty terrible, right? Yeah. So, but it is kind of cool when you say like, well, you're like palates riding so low, but I do think about sleep apnea and it's not, not just in patients with obesity, um, but there is a subset of patients with very small chins for some reason. And um, they will also have sleep apnea just because of like the interesting facial mechanics. So they may be very slender, but if they have a small chin, they might get sleep apnea. Retrognathia, is that what yeah, that is? Yeah. yeah. And Great I find work. that a lot of my, again, I don't have a ton of male patients in my practice these days. But I do find, just for some reason, that a lot of my men who have sleep apnea and smoke because of the small chins, a lot of them will have facial hair. Because I think it's just a visually, like, enlarges their chin. I don't know why. It's yeah. just, like, a weird thing that I've noticed. <laughs> right. Just to get the illusion of chin. Because I've been there. Unfortunately, I have to shave for COVID. <laughs> but I, I, I hear you. <clears throat> let's, let's move on. Uh, the, the lab work up here. I know this is. Should we just shotgun the labs, ANAs for everybody? Uh, can you can you tell us your approach? So, I I should mention that so there's like no recent papers about what is considered good blood work for anemia. There's no guidelines, right? It's all you know your experience and trying to extrapolate um, things from um, from available data. So there's two papers. One came out in 1989 and uh, one came out in 1990, which seems like 100 years ago, but it was like 30, right? And the one uh, that came out in 1990 said that um, physical, diagnosis, physical diagnosis gave answers 2% of the time and blood work 5% of the time as, as in terms of like cause of fatigue, which is horrific. And I think in my practice, it's probably higher than that, to be honest with you. I, I think medicine was different in 1990. I don't think sleep apnea was a thing like it is now. Um, and the other paper said that the lab abnormalities they found on patients with fatigue uh, usually were not the cause of the fatigue that was ultimately diagnosed. 
So with all that said, um, I do usually check some very basic labs on my patients with fatigue. So I usually do a CBC um, because I do find that anemia is reasonably common that it's worth checking for. That's one. I do check a BMP. And here I will say that I think there's a lot of institutional differences between ordering a CHEM 7 and a BMP, which is CHEM 7 plus a calcium. I do tend to order a BMP. And part of it is when I was like an intern and a resident, that's what we ordered. We didn't have a seven panel. We had an eight panel. Um, But I like the BMP with the calcium because as a primary care doc, and I don't know the incidence of hyperparathyroidism, but man, it is common. So we find a lot of pulse nodding. So we find a lot of hypercalcemia in patients and it frequently is relatively mild. It's not like, you know, 15 when you send them to the hospital. But I found a lot of, you know, calcium of 11, 11.5, where you start worrying about primary hyperpara or side effects of meds or something that will, like, they do feel better once you stop their, you know, defending agents or whatever or diagnose, you know, or make them better. So I do specifically check it with calcium. I do check LFTs um, because liver issues are common, but also because I think it's nice to see that albumin there. And I don't know the sensitivity uh, and specificity about uh, low albumins with chronic disease, but it's a nice marker to have because if you do find low albumin, I guess it's pretty specific for chronic illness. Um, and then finally, a TSH. I think like you'd probably be thrown out of medicine if you didn't check a TSH on a fatigue patient, although it is frequently normal, I will be the first one to admit. So that's my basic, like basic four things that I pretty much check on my fatigue patients because I don't want to miss the big stuff. What, what is some add-on testing if we're feeling... Let's say, yeah, what, what add-on tests might we consider and, and how will we choose when, when to order those? All right. So that's always a great question. So the one I consider probably most commonly is ferritin. Um, so there is actually reasonably good studies um, which were randomized and uh, controlled that showed that in women, so young menstruating women who are not anemic, having low ferritin levels, which are, you know, standing for iron deficiency, their fatigue improves if you replace their iron. And the studies were done, like they use different ferritin marker, different ferritin levels, like some used ferritin less than 50, others less than 20. So it's a heterogeneous population and some replaced with IV iron versus PO iron. Nonetheless, fatigue did get better. So since my patient population does have a lot of young women who menstruate, I do tend to check ferritin reasonably frequently if I think that might be the cause because it's something that's a relatively cheap test and it's an easy fix. Fair enough. Paul, yeah, and meanwhile, is Stuart like, I feel <laughs> I was like just Stuart say. somewhere was like, huh? like just, right. You know. I was just going to say he's cocked his head like a dog hearing a sound that people can't hear. Like he stopped whatever he's doing and just knows there's some disturbance in the ferret. <laughs> Why? <laughs> This is this is his obsession. I think he cited that exact same study. So it's just, I'm sorry he can't be here for a ferritin discussion, but also deeply, deeply grateful. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we I I do find this, and I do I, I find a lot of iron deficiency anemia because because of my patient population, right? It's heavily skewed. So I think if you mostly saw, I think about my colleagues in my practice who see mostly men, they probably don't check ferritin, but I do. <laughs> yeah, a past guest, uh, Dr. Michael Auerbach, he mentioned that when. When young women with iron deficiency anemia come in and they get IV iron, a thousand milligrams, they immediately feel better even before the anemia is fixed. So it's something about the iron repletion that helps them. And and then a lot of the studies on iron dosing, as you mentioned, they're not they don't even have to have anemia and they can feel better with the iron repletion. 
I also in practice, 100% agree. So I send a lot of people for IV iron and I've listened to that episode. I couldn't remember his name, but I listened to the iron episode and I was like, yes, IV iron rules. <laughs> um, I don't give IV iron in my office. I sent to hematology for that, but I have very low threshold to do that. I will try PO usually repletion first, but like nobody tolerates a dose high enough that you need to truly replace. <laughs> so, so we've gone on the iron tangent. Oh, Paul, you were going to yes. speak. I'll let you take it over. No, I was, I was just aware because I, I, I don't know. I've never known how to feel about checking for vitamin D and then also oh. B12. I feel like B12 is a little bit like prayer because it's not going to hurt and it might actually help. Right. But like D, so, I don't I don't even know what we're doing. So, so help me out with those. I can talk about it. So I actually sat down um, and I try to think about like all the things that my patients usually will request, the, the things that come up frequently because you'll also get referrals back from specialists. They're like, she has fatigue. Can you please check her vitamin D? And you're like, mm, no, I really don't want to do that. <laughs> so, um, so here are some common things that I've been either asked to order or was like silly enough to order when I was younger and less experienced. Fair enough. Like I've, I've, I haven't ordered all these things I have to say, but I've made a lot of these mistakes before. So a big one people like to check is CRP and ESR. And those two, you know, like CRP, mild elevations are very common. And then you don't know what to do with them. And um, ESR, like if you have it greater than 100, sure, you're really worried and something bad's going on, right? But like mild elevations in ESR are so common and you don't know what to do with them. So for the most part, like I feel like ESR and CRP work, like if you have high level of suspicion for disease and they're super high, sure, you you went digging. But like, why do you check them in the first place? Because you had high level of suspicion. And if you had lower level of suspicion and they were negative, great. Now you're not worried at all. But like, why did you bother checking them? So I usually tend not to check those for those reasons. I usually don't find that they give me any actionable, like actionable things, right? So what, what's the point? So vitamin D is an interesting one. What can I say? Like lack of evidence, lack of evidence, lack of evidence. So there's studies for, there's studies against, there's studies of women uh, with chronic fatigue syndrome that showed no increased prevalence of vitamin D deficiency. There's studies in fibromyalgia that showed with a lot of fatigue that shows yes, increase. So it, there's a lot of really muddy studies. I tend not to check it unless somebody truly has muscle weakness. So I think if somebody has like, so very low vitamin D levels can be associated with like seriously just muscular weakness. And if they have that, sure, I will check it. Or if they have a reason to have vitamin D deficiency, right? So if they have um, either some sort of a malabsorptive syndrome, like a lot of my patients will will have had um, uh, gastric bypass or something. So like if they're more likely to malabsorb, I tend to check it. If I think there's a high enough level of suspicion. With that said, if I find a low vitamin D level, I am almost ne- I almost never think that is the cause of their fatigue. Hmm. Fair enough. Like I just found it because it needs to get fixed, but I'm like I I can't truly in my mind feel that like I found the reason. Fair enough. So I tend not to check it unless I have some other reason to check a vitamin D level. And then B12 was the other part of that question that Paul had asked. Yep. So B12 is another common one that people come up with. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of culture with B12 deficiencies and being on B12 injections back in like the 80s or something. So people will still ask, especially in my older population. So interesting. So B12 deficiency can present with just neuropsychiatric symptoms without macrocytosis or anemia, like 28% of the time. And then there's a subset oh, wow. of people. Yeah, it's common. And then there are people who have just macrocytosis and no anemia, but no neuropsychiatric symptoms. So there's, there's a couple of different pathways where people can present. But interestingly, fatigue is not a neuropsychiatric symptom in itself, right? So neuropsychiatric symptoms of B12 are like depression, dementia, neuropathy, 
right? But not fatigue in itself. So if they have something else going on, right, that is a neuropsych, like a true neuropsychiatric symptom, I think it's very reasonable to check a B12 level. Uh, but apart from that, just with fatigue, same thing. I've never found that it was a useful test to order. Caveat. Caveat one is uh, B- B12 deficiency is very common in the elderly. Um, so I may have lower threshold to check for B12 in my um, older population. That's one. Or in people who tend to malabsorb. Same thing. So all my patients who tend to malabsorb their D will malabsorb B12. The second caveat is that um, a lot of hematologists move, are moving away from ordering a B12 level and just order MMA these days, which is what I've done. I, I haven't ordered the plain B12 in a very long time. So I tend to order methylmalonic acid as, as a better, more sensitive marker for uh, B12 deficiency. Yeah, that I, I like that. That takes the step out of it because usually you get these B12 levels 290 and the cutoff's right. 300. And <laughs> then you're just like, marginal. then you got to send them back to the lab and the patient gets stuck twice. So I, I like that. That's good. So I like that one. So the other one that commonly gets requested is T3 and T4 testing. So remind you, TSH is something I will check very frequently. But if the TSH is normal, there is like no value at all for checking free T3 and free T4. So like total T3 and T4 can go up and down depending on what else is going on. There's a lot of things, as we know, affects the TFTs. But free T3, T4 are pretty stable. But if you th- if TSH is normal and you're going, you know, you're going to start checking free T3, T4, basically you're looking for central hypothyroidism, right? That's the only condition that will cause a normal TSH and like a low T4, right? So central hypothyroidism is a thousand times less common than, you know, run-of-the-mill other hypothyroidism. So it's incredibly rare. And to go digging for it is very, very low yield. So in my entire career, I've seen one single patient with central hypothyroidism. And I have to say, like, he had other symptoms basically of hypopit, uh, hypopit um, that we were, you know, that ultimately uh, helped us diagnose him. And from our our recent thyroid episode, we talked about uh, like traumatic brain injury or pituitary surgeries or history of pituitary tumors, things like that. But like you said, it's not going to be like the answer, unfortunately. I wish it was, but it just isn't, right? So then the other common ones that come up are EBV titers, right? And I I don't know if you guys have had patients request these, but... um, so I think it's like remnants of the old thinking for chronic fatigue syndrome or something. And I, you know, people who have had acute EBV, they definitely can have this very prolonged like fatigue. I think up to like 13 or 50% of patients will get prolonged fatigue after an acute episode of infectious mononucleosis, right? But unless you've had that acute episode of mononucleosis, you can't ascribe the prolonged fatigue without the initial acute illness to, the, to EBV. So I tend not to order it because it's just not, it. again, I've never had a patient where it gave me like a useful outcome or something that I can like put my finger on and fix. Fair enough. Um, so the other common one is uh, rheumatologic testing. So severe fatigue for sure is a common um, comorbid condition, maybe not a comorbid symptom, I should say with rheumatological disease, really, really common. With that said, to diagnose rheumatological disease, there is a syndrome, right, of very specific things, rash, joint pain, whatever it might be. It's never just fatigue and like a positive ANA, right? There's, you know, the uh, positive serologies are relatively common. So it's by by itself, fatigue is never um, the one symptom. So I usually don't go digging down that road because same thing, you'll just find a lot of false positives that you're not going to do anything with. 
And yeah, and to tie this to other shows as well, like when we we did a, a show on lupus and the screening for lupus, like if the CBC and the urinalysis were totally normal, unless there were a lot of symptoms pointing, the, then the the rheumatologist, uh, it was Dr. Jonas, she would not like order this big panel. So I think that you can, the, the basic labs that you said, the CBC, BMT, LFTs, you know, those are probably going to show up something. Um, exactly. If if the person's like flaring some sort of rheumatologic condition, I a hundred percent agree. So the other common one these days people uh, like to think about is celiac disease, which for sure is very very common. It's like one percent of population, and fatigue is a very common finding in people of celiac disease. And it's funny, like if you look at the studies, prevalence is eight to a hundred percent fatigue <laughs> <laughs> depending on the study i like those odds you like right. the odds regularly eight to eight to a hundred percent will have fatigue with with celiac disease so again it's fatigue it's, it's really it's just really hard to say that fatigue would be the only presenting symptom over over chronic condition right so sure enough if like somebody has fatigue and diarrhea weight loss unexplained iron deficiency sure you could think of celiac you could check this around right you could check the serologist, but unless those things are happening, it's just not useful. The other interesting thing is that there, there was a study that looked at whether fatigue improves when people with celiac disease go gluten-free, and it actually doesn't. Hmm. Um, so I don't even know what to do with that, to be honest with you. Maybe it's because there's still some, you know, things that are, get, that are malabsorbed that it just takes a while to fix. I'm not sure. I'm Paul, not. and you were telling us uh, in pre-recording that you order Lyme panels on everybody? Yeah. Everyone, yeah, consistently. It's it's part of it's actually a part of a greater fatigue panel that does screening ANAs, um, <laughs> Lyme serologies, EB titers, and then oh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of ANA where you could just go straight to Anka <laughs> yeah. and yeah. Oh, now you're thinking <laughs> that's all. So Lyme, you know, Lyme. There's a lot of con- not, I don't even it's not controversy. There's popular culture out there about chronic Lyme, right? So people. The, the chronic Lyme disease is this like this nebulous, ill-defined syndrome of like chronic pain and fatigue and neurocognitive and behavioral symptoms. And it, it's awful. It's an awful syndrome, but Lyme is not the cause, right? So people who have untreated Lyme disease can definitely develop one of like, usually it's one of two big syndromes, right? There's usually either neuroborreliosis, but that's like meningitis or radiculopathy or a mononeuritis multiplex, or some sort of a cranial nerve palsy, usually like seven or eight. Or they can get Lyme oligoarthritis, which is like usually one joint, sometimes a couple, but usually it's a single joint, usually it's a knee. Um, and usually they have swelling out of proportion to the uh, to the pain that they experience for the, for the way the knee actually looks. Um, so those are like, that is tertiary Lyme, right? That's it. So chronic, those chronic symptoms are not part of those two syndromes. They're just not. Now, people who have had acute Lyme disease can experience prolonged fatigue and sometimes for a long time, but they would have had primary acute Lyme disease for them to develop fatigue, right? It's never just fatigue without the primary inciting event. Um, And then serology is very sensitive to diagnose Lyme. So a lot of people who have, you know, chronic Lyme will be tested and will be negative and then they go to the Lyme doctors and they wind up being diagnosed with chronic Lyme based on some other tests that get done in like these special private labs. So I, I'm very reluctant with that. But um, unless I think somebody truly has Lyme disease for fatigue only, I do not check Lyme titers. Because again, even if I find that they have a Lyme titer positive, it's it's not the cause of their fatigue. 
I, well, I guess it's maybe not even a fair question to ask, but you know, it's, I, you know, we're internists. We take care of multi-morbid patients. I'm just wondering how often you you get a clean answer to the patient's uh, concern. So, uh, especially with fatigue, because you know, you, I think I going through your slides that patients with hypothyroidism, or maybe obese patients, are more likely to have hypothyroidism, but also more likely to have sleep apnea. Um, so, like, just how often do you actually sort of find one unifying answer that kind of addresses the patient's underlying fatigue? You know, it's it's hard to give the exact number. So, I'll, I'll tell, so first of all, I'm going to say this because it's one of my favorite pearls that I read from this in in this book. Right, people with hypothyroidism are, are no more likely to be obese than they are to have normal weight, which was shocking to me when I found out because I always assumed that obesity was much more prevalent in people with hypothyroidism. Fair enough. Okay, so. As far as the question, how often I find stuff, you know, I feel like if I don't find stuff on basic labs, very commonly, it will be either depression or sleep apnea, right? And those two things, like I will go digging now, so like sleep apnea prevalence is fairly high. I think it's something like 25% of men, I forget what percentage of women, but it's a really high amount of people that actually have sleep apnea. We didn't talk about like the validated questionnaires because none of them really have like a great sensitivity or specificity or likelihood ratios. Nonetheless, I think if you maintain a high enough level of suspicion, sleep problems are relatively common. So I have pretty low threshold to refer people for testing. And then with a lot of that, you end up like treating for several months and see if they improve, right? So it's either they, you get, you treat them and they improve or whatever else was going on just improves. Like, I think it's really difficult to always pin the causality, you know what I mean, and and, and the treatment, and that's the problem. Um, same thing goes with depression, is that, like, I do treat a fair amount of depression. I usually don't have to refer to psychiatry for that, uh, but, but I do um, use a fair amount of SSRIs to treat depression with, like, pretty good results, I have to say. Um, so I feel like between, between sleep apnea and depression, that catches a lot of people, right? And it does leave some percentage of people that you just cannot diagnose, and it's really difficult. But there, again, it's rarely just, you know, um, fatigue as the only symptom that they have. They usually have other stuff going on that you can pin it onto something. So it's hard. And when I had asked you earlier about your spiel to the patient, let's say it's visit number three and it's looking like it's not any of the common culprits. Yeah. So I usually say to them, and sometimes we look really hard and I can't find a clean answer for why you have what you have. I can tell you that you don't have, you know sleep apnea, depression, you don't have anemia, you don't have thyroid problems, but sometimes sometimes you have to have a symptom for a while before maybe something else pops in and helps us make that diagnosis. But it, the only thing I can offer now is telling you that you don't, what you don't have, and then just keep clinically following you and see if anything new develops. And it, I tell them it's very frustrating for you. I can't even imagine how frustrating it is for you, but for me as a physician, it's also very frustrating because I want to like, I want to find something that's causing this and I want to help you fix it. And I can't. So it's very frustrating. But at this point, I think we've tested everything that we can test. So often I feel like the the underlying patient concern is for um, occult malignancy. Like I feel like it's anytime there's sort of a symptom that just something just doesn't feel, feel quite right. I feel like that's also sort of like this this anxiety that's kind of hanging out back there. Yep. So, the, um, so yeah, how, how do you address that specific concern with patients? That's a common sort of you... one. Um, so I usually do make sure that all my patients are up to date on all their age-appropriate cancer screening. You know, you can get into discussion about, you know, like colon cancer at 45 versus 50-year-old screening, stuff like that. But again, like for something like this, you know, you would expect to see some anemia or some other, right, some other markers in their labs. I think it's pretty difficult to have 
malignancy that causes fatigue, but causes no other lab abnormalities. Well, I think it's time to start to wrap up and, and get take-home points unless there's any other big questions that, Hannah, that you think we've we've missed. It's up to you if you want to talk about fibromyalgia and myalgic encephalomyelitis. So I think I'll just mention them very briefly because I feel like they're topics all in themselves. Um, people who have fibromyalgia, are um, they really have pain as a very prominent symptom there. So if somebody has just fatigue and no pain, I wouldn't called fibromyalgia, right? But there, there is, that's a whole separate diagnostic tree. Um, and then I, I think it's worthwhile also to mention that there are a lot of people who have uh, fibromyalgia as a core, like a comorbid condition. So people who have chronic pain syndromes for other reasons, um, like, you know, if they have rheumatologic conditions, they will frequently wind up with fibromyalgia because of central sensitization. So it is a thing, but usually pain is a big prominent piece there. It's not just fatigue. And then the other one, I feel like if we didn't mention it, it'd probably be very egregious, um, but I'm not qualified to talk about, except for that it, it, it is a, a real condition. So in the olden days, it was called um, chronic fatigue syndrome, and now it's called either myalgic encephalomyelitis or myalgic encephalitis by the Institute of Medicine criteria. And there are very defined criteria that talk about these things. So it's usually overwhelming fatigue, not improved by rest prominent post-exertional malaise, unrefreshing sleep, and either cognitive impairment or orthostatic intolerance, which are very broad categories. I, I, I can't say I've ever by myself diagnosed somebody with this particular condition, but that's really a diagnosis of exclusion. So I usually will go dig far and wide before I diagnose somebody with this, or I would diagnose somebody with this. Fair enough. But it's not a you know, people are like, oh, you know, it's not a real thing. It is a real thing. So it is a real condition. It's got diagnostic criteria. I think in the future, there'll be some more solid things that we can use to diagnose this condition. But at this point, it's still um, not very well defined, nonetheless appears to affect a, a, a certain patient population. Yeah, I think there's so many of these kind of fatigue associated conditions that disproportionately affect women that it's just important yeah. for us to say are real conditions and that kind of validate people's experience with these symptoms? I mean, I think most of those patients, it's just that it, it, I think they need to know that they're not making up symptoms. Like we know that they, they're, yes. what they feel is very real, right? Whether or not we can identify a cause or not, I think is a whole separate conversation, right? So I think that's, yeah. I always tell, that's the other thing I always tell patients is that like, I know what you feel is very real just because I couldn't find a cause. Cause I think a lot of patients really are concerned that when you cannot find a cause, you think they're making stuff up. And I always tell them like, no, 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 I know what you feel is real. You feel what you feel. But sometimes we cannot find an identifiable cause for what you have. Great. Yeah, even the, the depression screening, you have to be a little bit careful with just so it doesn't come off as like, that's not the thing you lead with necessarily, because it may give the implication that I think this is in your head, which is not what you're actually trying to get at. Yeah. Correct. Well, Let's get let's get any favorite take home points you have, and then and then we'll let you get to your evening. And uh, thank you so much for all this great teaching tonight. Well, thank you. So I guess my take home points here is that I think good history is key. Otherwise, you don't even know like where to start dealing with fatigue, and you get fatigue yourself by being in the exam room with a patient with fatigue. So the one way to avoid that is um, getting really good history in a very organized way to really guide your further workup. Um, because you may identify some real things. If you cannot identify any real like illness script that you can sort of grab at um, when you finish talking to a patient or examining the patient, 
then I would just get very, very basic labs and really try not to get any of the of the secondary labs that you should only check if there's a specific, you know, high index of suspicion for those particular problems. And then finally, I think that a real key here is close clinical follow-up so that one patient does not feel abandoned, but also so that if any new symptoms arise that will help you pin this, you know, fatigue one way or the other, you'll be able to do that and you'll be able to, you will be able to be there to identify that new symptom. Anything you'd like to plug before we let you go? No plugs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can plug my like, oh my, I'm not going to go there. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you for having this me. It's going to be an awesome episode. I, oh, I, I was so. I don't know. listening to you guys talk and I was like, oh, this is, is going to be one I'm going to be proud of. So thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. I actually have to, my uh, residency program asked me to give this lecture because they always have residents asking about fatigue. So I was like, great. I already have the slides. Yeah. Oh. I'll try not to bore the residents. <laughs> yeah, this will, this, I, I think this will be really, this will be really helpful. I'm sure Hannah will make some wonderful graphic to go along with it. And we'll put this out sometime in the next month here. That sounds great. Thank you guys for having me. It's a real honor. You're welcome. Oh, Nina. It's so great to see you again. Yeah. Bye, Nina. Bye. See you. Thank Bye. you. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Uh, strong work. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Hannah Abrams, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Hannah Rebecca Abrams. And before we go, we should give special thanks to Stuart for composing our excellent theme music, and as well as to Claire Morgan of Natalie for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.